Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the Jazz Session is also available in iTunes and at thejazzsession.com, where you will find Amazon links to uh, purchase the music you hear on the show. And if you do it that way, a little bit of the uh, money comes back to the show. And you'll also find a donate button if you'd like to make a direct contribution to the Jazz Session. I would greatly appreciate it. If you are interested in becoming an underwriter of the Jazz Session, you can find out how to do that at thejazzsession.com. There's a contact page. and Just uh, get in touch with me and I'll let you know. My guest today is the arranger and composer Daryl Katz. He and the Jazz Composers Alliance Orchestra have a new album called A Wallflower in the Amazon, which opens with his arrangement of Duke Ellington's I Like the Sunrise. My guest is composer and arranger Daryl Katz. He and the Jazz Composers Alliance Orchestra have a new record on uh, the Accurate record label called A Wallflower in the Amazon. And it's my pleasure to have Daryl on the show. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. So this record uh, covers an amazing amount of ground. Um, one minute you're uh, you know, kind of out there in this really adventurous, uh, large ensemble arrangement, and the next second you're hearing uh, Hoochie Coochie Man, and it all seems to, to hang together. And so I, I guess I start, wanted to ask to begin about whether there was some kind of overarching idea that you had for this album when you put this music together. No, this album is a reflection of me in 2009 it's um it's the music i had accumulated that wasn't recorded you know when these large ensemble pieces take a long time to write and so it's possible for me to have something that's more unified but these are just a collection of pieces Uh, and my style has always been kind of bouncing back and forth between different things both in the selection of the music and how I approach it and within a given piece. 
Yeah, that's certainly certainly true throughout this album. Uh, before we go too much farther talking about the music, I, I wonder if you could say a few words uh, about the Jazz Composers Alliance and uh, and the band that bears its name, so folks can learn more about it. Well, we were founded as a nonprofit composers collective group in 1985. It's kind of amazing to us that we're still functioning. Um, we're inspired by collective composers groups of you know contemporary chamber music composers there's a group in Boston called Composers in Red Sneakers and they they were contemporary classical composers and they took a really different approach to presenting the music was you know contemporary chamber music but they took a, took a really different approach to presenting it and that was kind of our inspiration we thought you know if classical composers can do that and market their music in a different way and why can't we you know because the other the other thing was to start your own big band and playing clubs which various have had done some of it's kind of this seemed like a better idea you know we'd get a group of composers together and produce concerts and so was the idea that all these composers were also instrumentalists and so they would form the band no, that would I mean, play the music? all the composers haven't been instrumentalists currently a lot of them are but no, it's not necessarily true at all and so, uh, I, I guess what what made it different? What what allowed you to succeed and to last uh, for this long? What's kind of the, the the operating method of the alliance? Well, you know, we're as a nonprofit corporation, we're able to seek funding for one thing. Um, there's not these days, as you might expect, there's less than there used to be available. But um, you know, we're able to seek funding from local, regional, state, national funding groups like the Massachusetts Cultural Council and the Aaron Copeland Foundation. things uh, that really hit me on this record was the the amazing poetry that forms the uh, the text of several of the compositions. Can you talk a little bit about uh, uh, the, the poet who wrote this? These the words? poet who wrote this is my wife, Paula Tatarunas, and in the, I don't know, sometimes she had, she'd always written poetry, but sometime in the mid-90s or 
sometime around then, she really became much more serious about it for quite a while. And I just began picking things up and putting them to music. It wasn't ever a particular plan, but I was always pretty interested in combining words with music, both spoken and sung. So, And she wrote about really interesting things that poets don't always write about. And so uh, do the words create kind of a, a programmatic element in the music? Are, are you writing music to fit uh, some of the things in the text? Yes. Uh, you know, not not always in a really specific way, but yeah, I'm totally wrapped up in the text. Not always in, you know, in a programmatic fashion, but some frequently or sometimes. You know, that can become too obvious, I think, but... They're not just words stuck in with the music. You know, I'm really trying to have the music somehow, not necessarily be a musical representation of what the text is, but to really fit. And that's kind of an intuitive thing, what really fits. But And to also really help the meaning of the poem come through. So like, for instance, A Wallflower in the Amazon, that's a poem about... Well, it's, it's a long poem. It's about a lot of things. But one of the things it's really about is dealing with being in strange new environments. And and I think we really have some pretty strange new environments for the vocalist to have to deal with. So that matched up pretty well. Yeah, that was one of the things uh, I was going to mention. That some of this poetry has some, uh, for example, the visiting my my aunties, which I actually read those words before, uh, and I'm also from Massachusetts, and I say aunt, and it took me two verses before I realized, oh, I'm supposed to be saying this auntie, and that's what makes it make sense. Uh, But that has some kind of standardized metric qualities to it, but things like a wallflower in the Amazon, a lot of that really doesn't, and that's very different from what someone's usually called upon to sing. I wonder what that was like, both to write the music to those words and also for for the vocalist. Well, oddly enough, I had an easier time, in a way, with a wallflower in the Amazon than I did with visiting my aunties. upon the X getting started. I guess the problem with visiting my aunties was getting it began. 
once once it was going, then it was relatively easy. Wallflower, yeah, it was very unmusical text. I I can't think of the exact passages. Um, there were some things that I just thought, how am I ever going to put these to melodies? And I I managed to do it in a way that pleased me. <laughs> Invaginations, efflorescences, uh, even. I can't remember the line now. Leanna's beaks and pharynxes, I think. Right. (laughs) That was just... And I managed to get it in a bluesy melody with a groove, so I was was very, very pleased with myself for having done that. And I wouldn't be doing this, necessarily, if I did not have Rebecca Shrimpton, who is just, you know... I can't imagine anybody doing better with things of that nature. Yeah, something I was reading about this album, uh, it mentioned how she's able to make even the most difficult passages sound conversational. And I'm not sure if conversational is the word I would choose, but they, but none of them sound forced. I think they all sound right. really flowing. Well, she, has, she has a really great ear, great techniques. She really understands the poems. She really understands the music, you know, everything that you could want the singer to do. And she managed to, you know, really make it musical. From your point of view uh, as a, a, a band leader and arranger and composer, what's it like leading a band where many of the other members are themselves band leaders? No problem at all. I'm not strictly the leader all the time. It's like I said, we're a composer's collective. So um, I've been in the group the longest of anyone. So I'm kind of in a certain position because of that. But we're sort of each composer takes over leading the group for themselves normally when we do their music. This particular, this CD is all my music, so this was my project, and so I was the leader on the whole thing, but that's not necessarily always the case. As far as leading a bunch of people who are used to leading groups, no, it's it's great, you know. Um, we have a really good environment, and, you know, people make suggestions all the time, and and they're often really great suggestions, and I use them, you know, so I have no problem with many of the people being involved wanting to put some input or add some input. It's very constructive. Uh, can you talk about uh, the uh, Ellington tune that opens this, I Like the Sunrise, how you uh, how you decided to do something with this piece and, and what you did to it? Well, how I decided to do that was we were going to, I always had loved that song. We were going to do a concert offer, offering the music of Ellington, Mingus, and Monk. Nobody could decide on one or the other. And I thought, I've always really liked that song, and Becky would be great at singing it. And she would, she's mentioned to me any number, a lot of the songs, not so much on this album, but a lot of the other things that we've had her sing have been very grim, dark topics. You know, a lot of references to death and dark spots of the human soul. And, and so she was really happy to have something optimistic, but also the melody and the whole feel of the song was pretty ideal for her. And I didn't finish it for that. I got really stuck in it. I came up with the idea of it being kind of Latin feel and twice as fast. And then that didn't work just doubling it. I had to then... The, it's it's actually twice as, twice as fast and twice as long so that the melody is unfolding at the rate at 
you know, it was a slow piece. If you've ever heard the original. Yes, yes, I have. So I didn't want to just make it twice as fast. I would make it seem rushed. So that was just necessary so that the lyrics and the melody would still speak. And for a long time, I was stuck with both the bridge. And I'm, anytime I do an arrangement of something, I want to put something that's really mine in it, put my mark on it. When you're arranging Ellington, and I really studied that score, by the way, of, of Dukes, and it's just its a marvel. And in a way, it's kind of frightening to mess with something like that, even though everybody does such things all the time. So finally, I somehow arrived at the conceptual idea for the bridge, which was to cut the tempo back in half and change the harmony pretty extensively um, based on a pedal tone and shifting harmonies over that. And that worked out really well, and then I was able to create the fairly long opening passage for the piece, which, you know, earlier I had been attempting to write, okay, this is I Like the Sunrise, I should write a musical depiction of a sunrise, and I just couldn't come up with anything that would work for that. And I'd given up, and then after I'd come up with my version of the bridge, which, you know, the the way the A sections of the song are pretty, although the, you know, they're faster and it's longer, but it's pretty true to the original, the melody and the, the harmony. And the bridge is fairly different. That gave me the idea for the lengthy introduction, and which all of a sudden really began to feel like it sounded like the sun rising. So I was, I was pleased with it. Um, what else can I say about it? Uh, I, I'm satisfied with that, if you are. <laughs> um, well, you know, um, I'm sure there's there's more to it. Um, yeah, then different things, you know, by the time I had those two elements, everything else is suggested by one or the other, so... Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I mean, it. Uh, I do like that idea of arranging something and and putting your own stamp on it. And there are a lot of things that we treat as kind of sacred texts 
in jazz, but I'm not sure that necessarily the generations before us always did that. So it's uh, uh, that sounds well, fine. Well, I, I don't treat it as anything as sacred, really, but still, it's a little bit intimidating. You know, that 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 tune to me, although it's not really one of the best known at all, that piece is really a masterpiece, and 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 I love what we did with it, but it still doesn't compare to that one. <laughs> Uh, as I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, I, I was really surprised the first time I listened to this without having read th- what was on the record or anything to, to suddenly come across uh, this incredible arrangement of Hoochie Coochie Man and uh, paired with uh, your tune All Bark and No Bite. And uh, I just think it works extremely well and is a really interesting use of a, kind of a, a traditional blues that's anything but traditional in this sense. Can you talk a little bit about the inspiration beyond that? Well, um, I originally did this arrangement quite some time ago. It was an instrumental version. It's the same basic things that are in the current version. You know, changed around some and this and that altered. But then when I was able to get Mike to come sing it, then I had to revise it so that it worked for him. Um, When I created it, you know the the whole my composition really came out of taking little elements from the way the Muddy Waters band played it, modifying them, modifying them, and making that piece. You know the twelve eight Chicago feel that they recorded that record with, um, which is you know it's twelve eight bass line and something like that is a, a quarter note and an eighth note and a quarter note and an eighth note just keeps repeating. And I just made the last eighth note a quarter note, which made it into thirteen eight. And then I, that inspired me, and that whole long passage that doesn't directly sound like Hoochie Coochie Man came from playing with the rhythmic elements. Um, and at one point, I was going to have the song itself, which is actually in the midst of a not very traditional arrangement at all. It's really almost, you know, it's very straight ahead when it actually gets into the song. And I might have, you know, I figured out how to make it work in 13.8 and be a kind of different feel, and I elected not to do that. Sometimes I think I would like to go ahead and do that arrangement sometimes, too. And it was just kind of combining these, so I have these two really contrasting elements, my song based on it and the song itself, and it goes sort of back and forth between the two and hopefully tells a story of some kind.
Yeah, I, I love the moment after uh, we've been hearing your piece when uh, it comes back into Hoochie Coochie Man and the you know the singing is right, is right back there and it's it, it kind of reminds you that all of this everything you've been hearing has been based on on this same composition and it's really uh, it's really impressive. I was really uh, really impressed with it. Thank you. I mean, that was that was my goal was to. Um, anytime I do something, I'm trying to write almost, you know, I would think I want to arrange this. I want to make almost a new piece out of it. And sometimes it's really hard to make that happen. And then, uh, and that one and, and some others that I've done, instead of really modifying the original, it's more like I write original material and go back and forth between the two. I've, I have a number of arrangements now that I do something along those lines. my favorite uh, piece of poetry on this record and uh, I think that contributes to this being maybe my my favorite composition on the record is the tune For Our Sins um, which I just think the the words are uh, just really really amazing I, uh, they are somewhat humorous too but I think uh, very beautiful and I, I love the feel of For Our Sins and then the way it kind of moves into this this uh, sax quartet uh, with the red blues and maybe you could uh, say a few words about those tunes well, for our sins was, you know, it's once again, as, as I was telling you, it's rather about death. Um, I mean, it's a humorous look at death, but nonetheless. Um, and the, it's, you know, it's very rare for me to write something that's two and a half minutes long or whatever it is. This is, you know, I tend to be, if you notice, all the tracks are 10 and 14 minutes long. But, you know, like I said, I pay pretty much attention the attention to the lyrics, and you know, it was a poem with a punchline. And once the punchlines happened, there's no point in going back, you know. So that kind of determines the length, and there wasn't really a way to just put it off. That's you know, the 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 poem really dictated the form, and so. There's brief instrumental passages where instead of there being 
full-blown or open solos. There's four measure solos. And so that made it work, but it was dictated to me by how the poem went. You know, we really wanted it to be like a punchline because that's how the poem reads. Accidentally inside a snowman Judas Hemphill. Well, he 
even though one's played by the orchestra and one's played by the sax quartet, they they fit together in that way. Does the uh, Jazz Composers Alliance Orchestra perform regularly uh, in the Boston area? or uh, Somewhat regularly. Um, I'm glad you asked me that, though, because we are performing October 12th at the Regatta Bar in uh, the Charles Hotel in Harvard Square in Cambridge, and would like to include that in this uh, interview, and I totally had forgotten until you asked me that. <laughs> uh, we play... It really varies, never more than six or seven times a year. Um, as much as we can manage, but... You know, it's... it's um, you know, we're, as I said, our main thing is we produce our own concerts, so we can only raise funding to do so many. Um, sometimes we've played in clubs. It hasn't always worked as well as we would have hoped. We're hoping this new thing at the Regatta Bar will change that. Um, we've never toured. It's kind of an unwieldy organization to tour. Um, you know, there aren't very many touring big bands. I'm sure there must be some. But um, uh, on my label, the, the, the on Accurate Records is owned by Rush Gershon, and he has uh, either orchestra, which was founded at the same time as we were, and. He told me that his group is, I forget, 10 or 11, which is, you know, slightly more than half as large as our group. And he kind of came up with that number because he figured it was about the largest amount of people he could manage to take on the road. <laughs> so uh, we're hoping to someday to catch on with some festivals. We've, well, we've played uh, some in the past, but not very many. And we feel like we belong in such things, but... We haven't managed to make it happen as of yet. Will uh, some of the music from this record be on the program on October 12th at the Regatta Bar? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure exactly which, well, but a lot of it, yeah. Well, unfortunately, we won't be able to play Hoochie Coochie Man because I was not able to get Mike Finnegan there. He's, in fact, going to be in Europe at that time. Yeah, he seems like a pretty busy guy from uh, what I know of his biography. So. Yeah, he's. Uh, I think he's touring with Joe Cocker then, so... Uh, Daryl, can you, uh, obviously this record has a lot of through-composed uh, moments, but it also has uh, some collective improvisation. Uh, can you talk about that? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, that's one of the quirks of my style is that I know any number of composers who use such elements, and that's kind of the most important element in their music. You know, they do basically improvised music, and my, so mine is like you say, through compose, but includes those kind of elements, which is, it's, it's for me, you know, I like having all these really very different kind of constructed, construction elements in my music. Some people have told me it's too many things. Others think it's, you know. Um, <clears throat> but each, each piece has its own approach to certain things, and a wallflower in the Amazon was one of the most satisfying ones. There's a passage where... If, you, if you've listened to it, it's where there's really a loud crescendo in the band after a more conventional trombone and soprano sax solo passage where the band is playing... They, they have written figures, but they select their own notes. And this always creates a great sound. I, you know, I, I always worry that if I do that, everybody will pick the same notes and it'll be really bland, but it never is. 
Um, and then there is a long passage. There was going to be a kind of controlled improvisation that I'd written for the band, and our vocalist was going to be speaking the passage of the text. And she said, no, why don't I sing this? And um, the the band is broken up into sort of four groups, you know, three groups of horns and whatever instruments are left over. And each of those horn groups, one player is the leader. And they have a written row of notes. And they play them at whatever rhythm the le- that they keep repeating, at whatever rhythm the leader dictates to them. And gradually the rhythm section and other instruments that are left just color in freely around it. So it makes a really cacophonic sound, but that still has a composed element that you can sort of hear running through it, but the relationship of those three different groups. So we've got four people conducting. So um, the relationship of those groups is always shifting, so it's never in the same place. And then through that, she sings freely using the text of the poem and manages to sound like she's in tune, which surprised me. So, And it, it creates, uh, I think, a pretty unique texture. And was very much in in with what the poem was about, which was inspired partly when my wife, who wrote the poem, was I had her recite poetry with the sax quartet in a more freeform fashion. She'd read the poems and they just freely play, and and she found this kind of terrifying having all these shrieking saxophones surrounding her. <laughs> so that was part of the inspiration for a wallflower in the Amazon, which is of course got more to it than that but and how do you transition out of those moments where everyone is collectively improvising are there musical cues that you use or how does that work well there's you know it depends on the nature of the thing it's off sometimes they're cut off sometimes there's a cue into there's always a written passage afterwards in my music so some kind of cue you know we just have to work out what it is some are really easy to accomplish some are tricky it depends on the nature of the particular thing but Usually, it's, that's that's not, not too much of a problem. My guest is uh, Daryl Katz. He and the Jazz Composers Alliance Orchestra have just released a new record uh, on the Accurate Records label called A Wallflower in the Amazon, which features uh, Daryl's arrangements and compositions. And uh, it's been my pleasure to talk to you. I really enjoyed this record, and thank you for taking the time to talk about it. Oh, thank you. So 
That's music from Daryl Katz and the Jazz Composers Alliance Orchestra from their new album, A Wallflower in the Amazon. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is in iTunes and at thejazzsession.com, where you'll also find Amazon links to buy the music, and you'll find a donate button to kick a little money back if you'd like. If you're interested in becoming an underwriter of the show, you can find out more by contacting me via the contact page at thejazzsession.com. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this program. They've got a new record called A Farcical Built for Six, which you will find online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the Jazz Session logo. Thanks a lot for listening. Please go out and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. <laughs>